You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more inf- Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org. A series called Life on Fire, and we're going to talk about how to really have a life that's authentic with the Lord Jesus Christ, how to have a, a faith that's real and a, a life that's active. If you have your Bible, open with me to 2 Timothy, that's in the New Testament, uh, chapter 4. We've been in this series. We've gone through chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. Today, we get partway through chapter 4, and it's been a, a great time, and, and, and I just am reminded so much about the the power of the Bible. Last week we talked about how reliable is the Bible? How authentic is it? How reliable? How has it been protected over the ages? And it made me think back. I actually brought today, this is the first Bible that I actually started reading. This is the one that actually became real to me. And maybe some of you, like me, go way back. How many of you remember this living Bible in the green edition from the 70s? Anybody else in there? Yeah, come on, like people have been around a long time, right? And, and, and I needed this Bible. It's a living Bible paraphrase, which means it was the Bible for dummies. And that's what I needed because I just needed the Bible to become understandable to me, real to me. And, and that's what they had at that time. Really, even the new, the new international version that we use here at Sun Grove Church hadn't really come out into its full form yet, its translation yet, till about 1984. So this is what I had. I remember being in junior high and, and beginning to read this. And this is where I went from being a conceptual follower of God, like believing in the idea of God, to start walking with God, that I, the words became a real and alive to me. Uh, and I look back over the years in different editions or translations, if you will, of the Bible. But one thing I realized is that over the years, this book, the Bible, has become a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. It's become like a flashlight at my feet when I'm in the dark and I don't know where should I go next, what's the right thing to do. But it's become like headlights as well to my path. It's really become understandable. It's a living and an active and a God-breathed word. And it's been just such a beautiful thing. And, and what I want to let you know is we just saw that video on our work in India. And it's great because the work that we're doing there in India, we are rescuing kids. They're the least of these. We take some of them out of sex trafficking. We bring them into a safe home where they're rehabilitated. They're then able to go from that into a regular boarding school situation. And these are kids who wouldn't be eligible for education in most of India. Anyhow, they get educated. They get food. They get clothed. I mean, we do a great work. And all that work is really good work. But if we didn't give them this then we have completely missed the point. We've helped their life, but we haven't helped their soul, the real them. And so one of the beautiful things about the work that we actually do in India is we plant churches. Those places that during the week are used for their education and the care and the child centers for the kids. On the weekend, it's a church. And our hope and our prayer is that there would be some kids who would be rescued out of their terrible circumstances. That they would go through, that they would learn the Bible, they would walk with Jesus. That some of them are going to go into IT or nursing or other areas. Opportunities that they should not have just simply because of their caste. 
But we believe that the word of God will become living and active in their life, a light to their feet, a, a headlight to their path, and then eventually they'll be able to come back to their village as a transformational agent. I believe that God will take some of the kids that you're sponsoring or I'm sponsoring and will call them into full-time vocational ministry. They'll come back to their village. They will be pastors in their villages that they were rescued from in the most dire circumstances, and they'll be listened to by the people in that area because it's one of them. It's not like you or I, a foreigner, coming in. But that the living word of God will become living and active in their lives. And today, I believe that God has you here to help you get your priorities aligned with his. It's pretty easy to get off mission, isn't it? It's pretty to get one degree off. And, and it would be easy for us to go into India and do all the social work. That's like the defense. We're defending against all the social evils. We're defending against the oppression. We're defending against that. But if we don't bring the offense of the word of God, then we're playing half a game. And we're playing a game that can't ultimately win. It takes offense and defense. And that's what we do there. And in the same way, sometimes in our lives, we want the word of God to be like defense, but we never really let it become offense. Here's why you need this sermon today. I believe that it is easy to get our priorities off mission. I know that God wants to remind you of his high calling in your life, his highest priority in you as a believer. I also believe that today in a room like this or up in the loft, there are some young people who know in their heart that God has called them into full-time vocational ministry, maybe as a missionary, maybe as a pastor, and maybe as a social worker in different areas, but they know that God has called you directly into full-time vocational ministry. And today, I'm going to speak directly to you, if that's you. I'm also going to speak to other people in the room who are here today and you're just saying, I'm living my life, I'm doing my thing, but God wants to help reshape your priorities at whatever stage of life you're in. And he wants to remind you of his love for you. I believe God wants to strengthen you today. I believe he wants to redirect your priorities and prepare you for the growth that you actually desire for in your heart. You want to grow. You want to get better. You want to progress. And I believe God wants to come alongside that desire and help you grow. So will you pray with me before we read God's word? Father, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would be here to speak to our hearts. That God, you will speak. And then we're responsible, God, for how we respond to how you speak. So today, Jesus, I just get out of the way. I ask that your Holy Spirit do your work in every heart out there, receptive to you. We pray in Jesus' name. And we said, Amen. So Paul is writing to Timothy. He's written chapter 1, he's written chapter 2, he's written chapter 3. We now hit chapter 4, and by the way, this is the second letter he's written to Timothy. There's already a whole other letter. But in 2 Timothy, he now gets to chapter 4, and he knows his time is short. And so he's, he's getting to that point where he's going to wrap up his letter. He's given all this precursor, all these instructions, and now he's saying this. Listen, if there's one thing I could say, before my life is taken... Before I'm done, if there's one thing I could say, this is what I would say. And so he begins to set the stage for his final message to Timothy. He says this, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this what? This charge. Okay, he set a legal, he basically just set the courtroom scene. 
He's saying, I've given you all these instructions, and it's been like me as a, as a father to you as a son in the Lord. And he's saying, I've given you all these instructions, but now I'm setting almost a legal scene. The judge is here. By the way, it's the judge of the living and the judge of the dead. It's Jesus in his presence. As God is my witness, he's saying, I'm going to give you this charge. He goes on, he says this, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties in your ministry. When God calls, when God puts in the heart for a young man or a woman to call them into a vocational ministry, God begins to speak to you in that way. In that moment, you have to realize that in this day and age, in this era, the ministry is an ongoing, long-term, constant challenge. It just is. The way our culture is going, the things that are happening in our world, to preach the word of Jesus Christ, to use the word in a, an appropriate way to rebuke or to correct. He's not saying, hey, you just go out and rebuke people, correct people. No, he's saying, as you teach the word, the word has a way of rebuking and correcting. As he's doing that, but I want you to understand that we live in a culture where it's a constant challenge. You say, why? Why is it a constant challenge to be a minister in today's world? And the reason is this, that just in the same way that you and I have gathered around ourselves an individual music library, in the same way that you and I have gathered around ourselves an individual movies library, in the same way that you and I have gathered around ourselves our individual life experiences, almost like a library, in the same way, Paul is saying, listen, people will begin to gather around themselves a library of ideas that wanders away from the truth of the word of God. They'll begin to get an idea library. They'll say, I want to take a little bit of God, but I want to add it to these other ideas I have, and I want to add it to these experiences that I want to reproduce, and I want to add it to all these things. And in a sense, it's like I have my own individual God, lowercase g, of my own making. That I now add Jesus to my life. It's Jesus plus. I add God to my life, but I have my own ideas, my own interpretation of life and its events, and, my, and I'm going to turn away to all these ideas, and I'm going to create a mixtape of my own ideas. And we live in a world where people more and more are saying, well, that's good for you, but I've got my own mixtape of ideas. And we're going to wander away, he says, from the truth. We're going to turn aside to myths. Not reality. Not facts. Not sound doctrine. So he gives this warning. Why? Because his day and age and his world is like yours and mine. Listen, there are many people today for whom Jesus is no longer enough. So I tried that. Or I want Jesus in my life, but it's Jesus plus. 
I need Jesus plus something else. And please understand, when I'm saying Jesus, there is God the Father, there is Jesus, there is God's Holy Spirit who indwells us. They are three in one. It is one. We need all the expressions of God as he reveals himself in his personhood through scripture. We teach the whole counsel of the word of God. We need that experience. But people are looking for Jesus plus. They say, I want to take Jesus and add it to my own music ideas. I want to add Jesus to my movie ideas. I want to add Jesus to the romance ideas I have in my head my heart. I want to add Jesus to my ideas of how I should serve. And what happens is we have a culture that is turning away from Jesus because they become lovers of self and lovers of pleasure instead of lovers of God. And so Paul is writing to Timothy saying, I know your culture is like this. I know your word is like this. So I'm going to give you a charge, a legal charge. He's saying people want Jesus plus. And we see it in our culture right now. People want Jesus plus something else. They want to gather around themselves. Hey, instead of following just the teaching of the word of God, I want to gather around myself a quiver of Christian personalities. And so I might not be engaging so much with the ideas in the word of God any longer. I may be having my ears tickled by just different personalities. And so I might be following a person instead of following Jesus. Remember, anybody who stands up to preach the word is an under-shepherd of the one good shepherd. And it's not me. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. So we live in a world where people want to gather around themselves a quiver of Christian personalities. They want to gather around themselves a a quiver of emotional experiences that at times they have to reproduce more and more and more. Because it simply can't be Jesus. It's got to be Jesus plus these experiences. And God says, listen, when you follow, when you walk with Jesus, you will have an intimate relationship. You will have experiences with the living God, but people are looking for extra So he gives a legal charge to Timothy and to any person that God is calling into vocational ministry and to every believer because scripture is clear that you and I are the ministers of the word. That if we have Jesus in our hearts, that we are his ambassadors to a lost world. So today, this charge is not just to Timothy or to someone going into full-time vocational ministry, but to you and to me as well. Here's one thing. It's not on your outline, but you might want to write this down. You might want to write down, here's one thing that I want you to understand, maybe something in your life that you could could grab a hold of, and it's this. Develop an awareness that you are accountable to God. One of the greatest things you can do in your life is to develop an awareness that you are accountable to God. You're not just accountable to self. You're not just accountable to your ideas or to people-pleasing, but that you and I are accountable to God. And what I mean by that is, right away, Paul is saying, listen, Timothy, I want you to understand that I'm charging you, but I'm charging you in the presence of God. The judge is here. He's the judge of the living and the dead. He's saying, Timothy, you are living right now. I am near the end of my life. I'm about to be dead, but God is the God. He's the judge of both. And we need to develop an awareness that our life is accountable to to God, that we have an accountability to him. Now, God forgives sin, and this is not a just that we simply fear God all the time, that if we sin, that he's going to reject us. No, God forgives us of our sin. He guarantees that we have our, his Holy Spirit inside of us as a guarantee that when we stand before him, we have eternal life. He's given us that sign, that seal of his Holy Spirit, but here's what I want you to understand. We are accountable 
for how we managed our time and our treasure and our talents in this life. And we'll stand before God to answer, how do we handle our time? Did I leverage all my time in my life for my kingdom, for myself, to please me? Was I a lover of self with my time, or was I a lover of God? We're accountable for how we handle our talents, the abilities that God has given us. Have I just simply used my natural abilities, my spiritual gift, my other abilities? Have I used them all to serve me, or have I used them to leverage them to serve God's kingdom, to build his kingdom? Or did I just maybe become a lover of pleasure, a lover of self, but not a lover of God? I'm accountable for that, so are you. In the same way, we're accountable for our treasure. Our treasure is not our tithe. It's not our bills. It's the leftover. Have I leveraged all my leftovers just to please myself and to give myself pleasurable experiences to become a lover of self? Or have I loved God even with my leftovers? Have I gained some heavenly reward because I loved his kingdom? I loved people in other places like India who could never, ever repay me. But I wasn't building my kingdom, was I building God's? I'm accountable for that. As a minister of Jesus Christ, I'm accountable for what I say to you. And you're accountable for how you respond to it. I'm accountable for my motives. You're accountable for your motives. We're accountable together before God for how we leverage our time, our treasure, our talent in this life. But we live in a culture that just says, please self, get through life, entertain yourselves in a sense, entertain ourselves to death. Use up our time. And God says, leverage it. We only have this life to leverage it for him in that same way. So listen, those who are called to preach the word of God and to teach the word of God will be both judged and rewarded differently. You say, really? Like they, they get judged differently? They get rewarded differently? Yes. Look at what James 3.1 says. James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more what? Strictly. That's not just in this life. That's also in the next. That we're, we are accountable so we can develop an awareness that you and I, we are accountable to God for how we live our life. That we're not just to be lovers of self and lovers of pleasure, but lovers of God. So he gives them this command. It's a charge. And the first thing Paul says is preach the word. Speak based on the authenticity and the reliability of the word of God and not on anything else. When it comes to preaching, we preach the word of God. And you need to realize that as we preach the word of God, the entire message of the word of God is to point people, you and I, to Jesus. There's lots of doctrine, there's lots of messages, but the primary message is to point you and me to Jesus. That's the primary message. If we teach lots of doctrine, but we get away from the atoning death and resurrection, and sacrifice of Jesus, which leads to salvation for people, then we will have a weak church. We would have an immature church. We would have a self-serving church. It would be very easy for our church to be about social causes and get off mission. So what do we do? We preach the word. The primary message is Jesus so in order to preach Jesus, there's a couple things that we got to avoid because it's very easy to get off mission, isn't it? Very easy to get off mission. So the first thing that we need to avoid is don't get distracted by a noble cause. 
Don't get distracted by a noble cause. Believe me, there are plenty of noble causes out there that are good causes, but they may be the defensive work in our culture, but never the offensive work of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It can be very easy to be a follower, a promoter of a cause and miss Christ. So don't get distracted by a noble cause. There are plenty of great, amazing causes out there that people, even non-believers, contribute to and give their lives to. And are they important things? Yes. But are they the main thing? No. Do they last into eternity? Often not. So don't get distracted by a noble cause. Second, don't get distracted by current issues. People are always looking for the next issue, the next hot spot, the next fad, the next thing that will make them sad, mad, or glad, and, and get all up in arms about it and want to get distracted by that. And they find that over time, given even a 10-year window, you'll find that that wasn't that big a deal or that wasn't quite the eternal thing. It wasn't as passionate as it felt at the time. Don't get distracted by current issues. And three, don't get distracted by people's approval. Don't get distracted by living up to what other people think you ought to do, what other people uh, expect you to do. In fact, the more and more the scriptures told us in the last chapter that everyone who wants to live for God in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. There will come a time when people will expect you to live for their approval. And they will say, if, you, if we disapprove of what you're doing, then you're out. We don't like you anymore. They will say, you take your business somewhere else. They will say, you get out of our area. You no longer come and be around us. We don't want to hear what you have to say. And they will push and push and push because as our culture gets farther away and removes God from culture, the culture itself will engage subscriptionism, which means you must subscribe to pleasing the culture. And if you don't, there are consequences. Well, again, don't get distracted by people's approval. When you go to the word and when you read the word and when you pray and follow God's leading and when you seek him, listen, when you seek God, you will always have more to say than people have time to listen to. But it starts here. It starts with the word of God. When someone's called to preach, they're called to preach the word of God. When you're called to share Jesus with others, you're called to share the word of God. And so he says this. In 2 Timothy 4, 2, he says, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Again, he's not saying, hey, you just had your own opinion or your own, you know, intolerance with people, just rebuke them and preach at them and correct them. He's saying, no, as you preach the word of God, the word of God corrects. Remember last week we talked about this. The word of God offends. It offends me sometimes. But don't you offend. Let the word of God offend. And as you carefully teach, as you instruct the word of God, it's going to become offensive at times. You know why? It's going to rebuke. It's going to take an idea that I've kind of been making agreements with and believing that is not true. And it's going to reveal it with truth. And it's going to rebuke a false idea in my life. It's going to rebuke a false priority in my life. But then it's going to do a good thing. It's going to correct. It's going to show me, here's a better way to go. It's going to say, son... Daughter, there is a better way. Follow this way. So the beautiful thing about the word of God and about God's Holy Spirit, he doesn't just rebuke to rebuke. He, he wants to correct false ideas, and he wants to show us a better way. 
And that's what the word of God does. So it's going to correct, it's going to rebuke, it's going to encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Listen, some people don't like to be rebuked. Some people don't like to be corrected. Every now and then I'll get a letter from somebody who brought someone to church. Let's say it was Christmas or Easter. And they brought someone and they're like, I brought them on this you know, Christmas or Easter. And they have an expectation of just this nice message so that all their friends and everybody that they are with them can go out to lunch afterwards and say, wow, what a great sermon that was today. It was so nice. And sometimes I'll get a letter because... What happened was they brought a person to church, and as that person was at church, they're afraid that they heard something from the word that might actually be rebuking or correcting or training in righteousness, and they're afraid because they think, my goal is people's approval. I'm actually more afraid of my friends being okay with going to church than I am with what God's word had to say today. Listen, if you are called to the gospel ministry, then you are called to comfort the afflicted, and afflict the comfortable. Why? Because that's what God's word does. It loves us too much to leave us where we are. And that's the nature of it. So again, what's our motivation? When I bring a friend, my motivation is let's get them in the presence of the word of God and let the word of God do its work in the heart of people. I went to seminary, which is, I went three years full-time, Denver Seminary, uh, after college, so you do another three years full-time, and uh, got a Master of Divinity. And at the seminary, there were preachers there, aspiring preachers, who literally thought, well, I'm just going to get up, and I'm going to preach the word, and because I got up and I preached the word, the listeners are going to get it immediately, and they're going to respond correctly to the word because I preached it to them once. And what I have to tell them is, they won't do that. And sometimes they can't do that. And you think maybe I'm telling preachers or aspiring preachers, but I, I got to tell you there's some other preachers in this room. They're called parents. And there are parents in this room who think if I just tell my kids the right thing to do, that they should respond to it and own it and know it deeply and agree with it and respond correctly the first time, right? Or is it just me? I'm the only parent in the room who does this, right? Right? No, parents, we do this. We're like, if I just share with them, I have told you. I have given you careful instruction. Uh, you're supposed to get it the first time, but I want to tell you, even parents, sometimes they won't because they can't. You say, what do you mean? Well, Paul tells Timothy to do these things, teach these things with great patience. You know what gives me great patience? It's when I think back to the amount of time it's taken for me to learn some of the things that God's been trying to get through this thick skull and how many years and how much time and how many times I had to hear it or read it or the experiences I had to go through to learn some of the concepts and things that God has given me. And when I remember that I had to go through seasons of difficulty to get it, when I remember I had to endure hardship to understand it. I couldn't grow when I first heard it because I wasn't there yet. And when I remember how long it's taken me, it's what gives me patience with others. See, that's what makes you and I patient with people. So listen, don't be discouraged, parents. Keep teaching and training. Do you realize even a person who comes to Christ, they have to hear it about seven different, they have to hear it about seven times in a number of different ways before they get it and they're ready to respond and hear the truth. So don't give up with your friends. Don't give up with your children. Keep 
preaching the word of God. Don't preach condemnation at them, but preach truth. Keep telling them, what has Jesus done for you? And all of a sudden, there's a click that can happen for people when they realize that perhaps Jesus could do the same for them. And they turn not toward you and pleasing you, but they turn toward Jesus. It's all about him. So listen, let the Holy Spirit do his work of drawing people to Jesus. What's your response? Understand, you can't make someone be saved. How many of you in this room have ever tried to change a person? How's that been working for you, right? It hasn't worked for any of us. We can't change a person. We can't, I can't make a person change because I want them to change. They have to get to a point to be receptive, to be open, to be willing to change. They have to make that decision for themselves. You can't make someone what you want just because you want them to be that something. You can't change someone because you want them to change. So be patient. Just remember how long it's taken you to get some of the things that God has been wanting to teach you. And for some of you, it's taken you that long and you were seeking God. You were reading his word. You were following him. You were praying. You were asking. And it still took you and I that long. We couldn't learn it until we went through that hardship. We couldn't learn it until we walked that experience. Well, that will make you and I patient with other people. Here's the danger. We have a very real enemy who comes along and says, I want to convince you that you've run out of patience. I want to convince you that you've been patient long enough. And there are some of you in this room, and you've made an agreement with the evil one, that you've been patient long enough with your spouse. There are some of you in this room that say, I've been patient long enough with this friend. They haven't changed. Or this person. There's some of you in this room who think, I've been patient enough with my children and they just, and so you're throwing condemnation at them. You're, you're rejecting them. You've shut down to them. Your heart has grown cold toward them. And the enemy is simply trying to draw you to expect the other person to be where you are right now. But that other person won't be there until they've gone through some of the experiences that you have to be where God has you right now. Don't lose heart. And if you've made an agreement with the evil one that you've grown impatient with the spouse, you've grown impatient with a family member or a friend, then at this time, you would just want to say, God, let the scripture in me rebuke that idea. That's a wrong idea. I'm turning away to culture. I'm turning away to their impression. I'm turning away to myths. I'm turning aside to things that aren't true. I think the grass is greener somewhere. God wants to realign our priorities. Let me give them to you. Your next fill in the blank, number two, my priorities are Jesus, my spouse, and then everything else. Jesus, spouse, and everything else. When I went to seminary a number of years ago, it was kind of that mindset, that idea oftentimes that your high calling was, first priority is God, your second high calling in life is the ministry, and if the ministry runs over your, your family, so be it. And let me tell you, that is a recipe for disaster. Your family is more important than your work, no matter your occupation. And the priority in scripture is Jesus that he becomes our soulmate, that there is no other who knows my soul. He's the judge of your soul, whether you're living or, by the way, if you're dead, 
He's the judge. You might die and your spouse may not be there yet. They may get there eventually, but they're not there yet. Jesus is your soulmate. Your spouse is a helpmate. Your family is your family. And so your priority has to be Jesus first as your soulmate to meet your soul needs. Then it's your spouse. Then it's everything else. Incredible high priorities we have in life, work, our living, other things. But what happens, it's so easy to get off mission. And we make things so, such huge priorities in the lives of our kids and others and put pressure on our kids and others. This, is, this young culture feels so much pressure. They're convinced that they must get good grades more than follow Jesus. They're convinced that they must be a pro athlete more than follow Jesus. Well, athletics are a part of life. Grades are a part of life. Are we to be excellent at what we do? Yes. But let's put our priorities in order. Are we training our future generations to love and walk with Jesus? That this could be a flashlight to their feet and a headlamp to their path? Or are they following your priorities because you and I somehow got a little off mission? What are the character qualities we want to develop in our children? We don't know our days, our times. We don't know their days or their time. We don't know their years. And that's why when someone dies young, it feels like it snuck up on us. What are we trying to instill in them in that? So what does Paul say to Timothy? He says, but you keep your head in all situations. Have any of you ever lost your head in a situation? Come on, just be honest. You just, you lost it. You just, yeah, we totally just like, whoo, lost my head. I just got, I got angry. I got overwhelmed. It was a crisis situation. And I just freaked out. And we do that. We lose our head, right? But he says, you in the ministry, Timothy, as you're working with this church, keep your head. In ministry, you're going to face all sorts of situations. Keep your head. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. What's interesting is that Paul writes, he says, Timothy, listen, keep your head in all situations. Eusebius, an early church historian, tells us that Paul lost his head and was martyred for his faith under the persecution of Nero in Rome. So here's a guy going, I know my time is short. I know I'm potentially about to lose my head, but you, you keep yours. I may lose mine, right, but you keep yours. Keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Paul was calling Timothy. Listen, he said, one of the things he told him was to endure hardship. Why? If you're taking notes today, you want to endure hardship. Why? Because hardship sifts us and it teaches us the lessons we want to learn, which, by the way, comfort and peace never can. Right? We want to learn, God, make me comfortable because then I'll really have the time and I'll not be stressed. I'll really learn some things very well. And how many of us, if we're being honest with ourselves, say the greatest lessons we learn were in hardship? Right? Why? Because it forced us to grow. We don't learn often in peace. We don't learn often in comfort. But he's saying in the ministry, you're going to face all sorts of things, so keep your head in life, you are going to face all the things. We are going to do that. And so we're going to have to learn how to endure hardship. So here's what I want you to do. Develop in your heart a willingness to suffer for Jesus Christ. See, when you hear that, sometimes you think that is other people persecuting you. But sometimes when you and I grow, it 
it's through suffering. So if you're saying, I'm going to develop in my heart a willingness to suffer for Jesus Christ, it's saying, I'm going to give myself to the process. What an athlete does when they get to this time of year, and they got to go out on the football field when it's 100 plus degrees outside, and they got to go through conditioning week, and they're thrown up on the field, and they're not feeling good. What are they doing? They're saying, I'm willing to endure suffering for football. But as a believer, you and I, we need to say, I'm willing to endure the things that will make me grow. Listen, God will always, life will give you more than you can handle. But God promises never to leave you, never to forsake you, and he will walk with you through it. And so often we're like, God, rescue me out of it. Get me out. And he's saying, no, sometimes I'm going to cause you and your character and your person to grow through the worst times, the hardest times. When you and I look out at life, sometimes we think that the grass is greener elsewhere. All too often in the years of the ministry, I've watched uh, pastors leave one church and go for somewhere they thought that the grass was greener, but what they don't realize is that the pastor who was there before them thought the grass was like a drought and it was dry and it was dead and it couldn't go any further in their leadership and they left for somewhere that they thought was better. And when that pastor gets there, they find out the grass was photoshopped. Right? How many of you, your lawn died last summer in the drought? Come on, be honest. I wasn't the only one. Your lawn died or the lawn around your apartment or the lawn you know, in your neighborhood or whatever died. How many of you cheated and just kept watering? Be honest. Just, you may confess you were absolved. Um, I wasn't sure our grass was going to come back at all. Uh, it's dead, man. I got to get new sod. We're going to have to pay for that. So grass came back. What did we learn? The grass is greener where you water it. Sometimes the enemy wants to make you decide that this hardship is just too hard or that you're impatient with somebody. And God is saying, endure hardship. I want you to grow where you are. I will walk with you through this. And I'm in the business of taking dead things and bringing them back to life. That's what I do. God takes dead relationships and he can bring them back to life. God takes dead heart, cold soul and will bring new life to them through Christ. That's what he's in the business of doing. But all we see is the drought, and we can't imagine the rain. God's calling us to that. So to endure hardship. 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, four verse 6. Paul says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering for the time of my departure is near. See, Paul is no longer under house arrest. He's now in a Roman prison awaiting death. He's on death row and it's not nice there and we don't know what's happening to him except that he says everybody's deserted me and by the way I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. Their example was Christ who said I will drink this cup of suffering. It's the cup I've got to drink. And Paul's saying oh, I'm already being poured out. He might be saying I'm getting the snot beat out of me. I'm bleeding every day. I'm being, be I know it's coming soon. He's saying, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, but listen to what he says next. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Why do we long for his appearing? Listen, when the vanities of life no longer hold their charm, 
We long for the appearing of Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. The word is Maranatha. Come. We're looking forward to you coming back. Yes, you're the judge, and yet we welcome you. He's saying, I charge you in the presence of God, in the presence of this judge. Timothy, you're accountable to him. But now Paul is saying, and I long to either go to be with him or that he would return for me. I fought the good fight. What are you saying? I've been a good steward. At whatever point in my life, and at first he was a persecutor, but then he decided I've been a good steward. I fought. I haven't gotten off mission. And I'm about to give my life for the cause. He's saying, if I could say one thing to you, Timothy, this is what I would say. Preach the word. Why do you and I need the word in our lives? Because it's only through the word that you and I will have a life on fire. You want your life on fire? Be in the word. You want your life on fire? Let the word speak to you. Let the word begin to have claim into your life. Begin to obey what the word says, not because you're trying to please somebody else or look better to culture, but because you're trying to please Jesus Christ. No longer a lover of self and no longer a lover of pleasure, but rather a lover of God. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, as we're going to prepare for a time of communion before we get there, I just want you to think for a moment, have I given my life to Jesus Christ? Have I let the word of God have claim in my life? Do I let it speak to me? Do, do I give it bandwidth in my life? And if today for the first time you're realizing the only way to be saved is to give your life to Jesus, and that's just offering faith to what Jesus did on the cross. You're saying, I'm going to give belief, I'm going to give faith, I'm going to give my life to the fact that Jesus was crucified for my sin, that he was dead and buried, that he rose to new life, that he is God, and he is the judge of the living and dead, and he will come back someday, or I will someday die and go to be with him, but I'm accountable to him, and so I want to give my life and experience forgiveness for my sin right now. And if that's you right now, then you pray a prayer like this to Jesus. Say, Jesus, today I give you me. I believe you died on the cross for my sin that you were buried, that you rose to new life, that you're God. I ask you to make me a new creation on the inside and wash me as white as snow because today I give you me. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.